Hello, and welcome to TransAsia and the World. I'm Joy. And I'm Galen. And we're talking today about an important woman ruler from the 19th century in India, the Begum of Bhopal. You might not have heard of her before, but Mariha Akhtar has spent her PhD career learning more about her. And today we get to have a conversation with Mariha about this fascinating woman and her significance for us today. Welcome, Mariha. Hi, thank you for having me. Mariha Akhtar is a PhD candidate at Stanford University. She has studied modern South Asian history there with a minor in feminist, gender, and sexuality studies. Now, India is one of my areas of interest, but I know a lot of people don't really know what was happening in the late 19th century India, nor what the life of women was usually life like at the time. Could you give us a little bit of a description of that? Yeah. Um, so by the late 19th century, um, the British had already been in India for at least uh, a century. Um, and so there were a series of debates going on in various parts of India um, about the role of women and about what their lives should be like, um, kind of versus what they were actually like. Uh, and part of part of these debates came about because of, of British presence and because of laws that were being um, that were being enforced, etc. So a number of these debates, by the time we get to the late nineteenth century we're definitely about the role of women in society. So there's actually a substantial amount of research looking at the expansion of roles in society and how that was driven by male reformers and modernists. But I think it's also important to remember that gender was not the only driver of who was able to participate in these kinds of debates. And class was also a really critical factor. So we do also see a number of educated elite women who by the late 19th century are traveling, they're writing travel logs, uh, they're writing about clothing choices, about religion, about the need and the types of education and healthcare for women and girls, etc. And part of this was coming from their actual experience of being in India, being female in the late 19th century and seeing a set of possibilities and a set of changes that they wanted to take part in. What kind of changes or possibilities were of interest to women at the time? I think education and healthcare are two of the biggest ones. And also the third, I would say, would be dress. So some of the, like a major set of debates at the time, for example, was surrounding whether women should retain tradition and if not, to what extent they should be changed. So if we take Barda, for example. So Barda is just a, a Urdu and a Hindi word for curtain, uh, but it actually involves two social practices that elite Muslim and Hindu women in India maintained. So the first was when women keep themselves confined to the four walls of the home. Uh, and often in elite Indian households, women lived in their own separate part of the house. And the second practice comes from the late 19th century when women in Barda began leaving the house. Uh, so they would leave in palanquins, which were these kind of little, um, little square boxes, basically, that they sit in, they little windows and they're carried, um, or fully covered in veils, which is something that we also we still see today. Um, so it's important to remember that Barda was a, a social marker of eliteness and also of upward mobility. 
And so, for example, if, if a woman didn't have to leave the house to go to work or to visit the market by herself, for example, then it was clear that the family was well off. So in the 1910s, during a set of ladies' conferences, women actually got together to talk about what to do about this practice, about farda, about veiling. And so many of the attendees were split on what they should do. So should we get rid of the veil altogether? Should we ease restrictions or should we, should we keep it? So that, I think, is, is one example of how women who were taking their own experiences and were looking at the rest of the world and were saying, okay, things are changing. How do we want to be involved in these discussions surrounding change? And taking something that was very, very close to how they understood their lives and their worlds and the spaces that they existed in and starting discussions that way. Did women at the time see Porta as being something that was beneficial to them? Or was it a feeling of it being imposed on them and constricting them? I think it was both. And it, it kind of depends on who you ask. So when you ask some elite women, especially the younger ones, for example, at the who attended these ladies' conferences, they're the ones who say, we should, we should get rid of it. I want to leave the house. I want to dress however I want. I want to travel the world. I want to move freely in public spaces. Uh, and then you have some some other elite women, and they tend to be the older ones who say, "No, we should we should keep it the way it is." But this tension that you point out here about whether it was imposed from without or whether it's a choice from from within the individual is a tension that we see. Um, it changes really quickly over World War One. Uh, so, you know, Bartha pretty much dies out. The veil stays, but a lot of women across the world in Turkey and Egypt and India are for getting rid of the veil. And even over the past century, we've seen this question come up over and over again in various forms. Um, is women's dress de- decided upon by men or by others? Or are women deciding it themselves? Um, and also can and should the state regulate religion and dress is a super important question that comes up in this time period in India and elsewhere. Can I ask you, I mean, I know India is extremely diverse, especially religiously, and the area you were studying is Muslim, right? But can you tell me how this practice of Pertha mapped on to like the religious cultural diversity in India at that time? That's a great question. It's super hard to, to generalize about India. Yeah. As you noted, it's huge. Um, I study mainly North India, and then uh, my dissertation gets a lot into Central India. Um, the state that I'm looking at is a perfect way to answer your question because it was ruled by Muslims. That, that was the elite. But the majority of the state was Hindu. So it was actually really difficult for the elite to try to impose a set of laws based on religion on a non-Muslim population. So they had to be very careful about what that looked like. Uh, In North India, we had colonial rule. uh, And of course, there's this long history of the British coming in and not only misunderstanding, but also judging practices in a very specific way and adjudicating in ways that they saw fit. Um, So for example, certain practices uh, like sati, which is widow emulation on a funeral pyre um, was abolished in 1829 following a set of very rigorous debates. Um, And this set of debates actually mostly didn't include women, but the the debates were about, again, tradition and modernity and who gets to decide what progress looks like. 
And sati was more of a phenomenon among Hindu Indians. Yes, yes, definitely. Um, Partha is an interesting example because Muslim and Hindu elite women practiced it. And over time, it starts to become associated more with Islam. Um, But you have, for example, in Northwest India, in Rajput ruled areas where Partha was practiced for a long time throughout the 20th century. Um, So that's, it's not an exclusively Hindu or Muslim practice when it comes to South Asia, which is, I think, what makes Bartha a great example for thinking about change regarding uh, women over time. This was also the era of growing nationalism, right? India doesn't be an independent country until the 1940s. And and I know usually people are thinking about the early 1900s as part of, you know, really fighting for nationalism. But I'm wondering about what was going on with in terms of uh, Indians seeking independence during the late 1800s. That's when the Begum is, um, uh, Sultan Begum is in power, right? Yeah, she comes into power uh, in 1901, actually. Um, but, oh, okay. No, but I mean, the question, you're totally right. It goes back to the, to the late 1800s, the late 19th century. So again, a lot, of, a lot of scholars look at 1857 in this moment in which um, sepoys who were employed by the English East India Company rebelled against company officers um, who, were, who were often British. And this moment of rebellion spread fairly quickly throughout North India and is seen uh, somewhat generally to be a a big shift in which India moved from um, ruling rule by the East India Company towards the crown. Uh, And this is is post-1857 is when we start to see civil and criminal codes instituted. We start to see a very strong colonial bureaucracy start to take shape. Borders from or from the earlier centuries are solidified, um, and we start to see civil or excuse me personal law for religious communities. So those are some of the big shifts, um, and this is when the question of modernity again comes about. Um, and as soon as you have this 1857, which in in a lot of Indian nationalist um, or at least Indian histories, this is the first rebellion against the British, right? The first move for independence. Um, and this is when the question of, of what tradition is, what India is, what it can look like without the inf- outside influences starts to come about. Um, so this is when we beget, begin to get this really long idea before you even hit you know, the 20th century, let alone the 1940s, of what Indian modernity is, of what Indian potential is. You have this... Uh sultan this queen right who is as you said coming into power uh what was it 1901 mm-hmm, correct tell us a little bit about her what what she was doing and maybe what she was like as a leader oh yeah so um she she when she came to power in 1901 she was actually 48 years old and had had five children by then. So she um, she was brought up to be a ruler and she was the third, uh, excuse me, the fourth in a line of um, female Muslim rulers. So she came into power after her mother passed away and she was raised to be a ruler by her grandmother, um, all of whom were also rulers themselves. So she was kind of fully formed as an adult, if you will. She'd she'd finished having her children. She was raising all of them. 
Um, and she, she came to power. Her husband actually passed away within six months of her taking power. So she, it was just kind of her and the state. So she, um, she was a pretty devout Muslim. Uh, she had lived in Farda most of her life, and she wore a veil, which actually was um, unusual. So her great-grandmother and her grandmother did not wear veils. Um, her mother started wearing, wearing the veil later in her adult life. Uh, but Sultan Jahan Begum wore a veil her whole life. Um, and when I say she lived in Farda, I think I, it's important to note that when I was talking earlier about elite Indian households that had separate areas where females lived, the Begums actually did their own thing. So they lived in their own palaces. They had female servants. Um, you know, they lived with their, with their uh, daughters-in-law and with other female members of the family. And men lived completely separately. <laughs> completely <Wow>. separate houses. <laughs> so, um, so they're they're a bit of an anomaly in that sense. They're they're almost, you know, they definitely fit in this this view of what elite culture was like. But they're almost a bit separate from it in their own kind of elite worlds. Uh, so for her, Bartha was something that she grew up in, and it was natural. But it also wasn't a separate part of the household. It was just the whole female household. Yeah. Um, but she, would you? Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Sorry. Uh, so, would you call that a matriarchy? I would. I would definitely yeah. call that a matriarchy. <laughs> um, these women were incredibly dynamic. I, I hope I'm not flattening their personalities and describing them. Um, so, Sikandar Begum, who was the second Begum, uh, was known for leading her troops into battle on horseback. She had male courtesans who performed in her palace, um, which just really flips the gender dynamic of many of these princely courts in which you had female courtesans performing. Wow. Um, yeah, these they traveled the world. They were some of the first women to hit the high seas. They went to what's now the Middle East, um, what was then the Ottoman Empire on Hajj. They toured India. They went to Europe. They were just these... Um, headstrong in the best way possible kind of women. Is this totally unique in the Muslim world? I'm just, I don't know. Not necessarily. Um, I mean, without getting too much into, into the academic stuff, there actually, there's a lot of histories of women who wield power, if not in their own right, um, in, in the, the ways that's available to them. So for example, women in the Ottoman harems were they had their own specific hierarchy and many of them were able to influence actual policy as well as succession. Um, and so in that sense, I don't think it's completely outside of the box of what's possible in the history of Muslim women. I will say, though, that ruling in their own right is very unique. How was she as a ruler? Did she interact um, like did she create a lot of laws? Were there a bunch of things that happened in Bhopal at the time that she needed to negotiate? Yeah. So um, she, as a ruler, when she came about, uh, she's changed a lot of what had happened before her. So Bhopal had its own criminal code uh, that was actually named after her mother. It was called the Tazgirati Shah Jahani. Uh, which in Persian is just the the penal code of Shah Jahan, who was her mother. Um, and she actually took on the British, so Sultan Jahan Begum, after 1901, took on uh, the British penal code. Um, she she changed the, um, the currency system to the British system. Uh, however, 
she did also do a lot of um, of things that were unique to Bhopal. So she, I don't know that she necessarily interacted with her people. She likes to write about how she interacted with her people, specifically the women in her state, to try to find out what it is that they want and what it is that they need. Um, but she, regardless of whether she did that or not, she was really good at painting herself as kind of the Indian voice of women to a British audience. Uh, and in that sense, she used Bhopal as her as her home base. So she was like, I know what Bhopali women want and what they need. And this is what I think more broadly about India in general. Um, and in terms of, of policies and in terms of wielding power, she was in charge of, of a very strong administration that was actually, you know, centuries old that was based on elites. Her power was recognized by local elites. Um, there were a series of printing presses in Bhopal where, um, you know, theologians, uh, various writers and scholars who had moved there after 1857 um, especially would, would publish. A lot, a lot of it was in Urdu. There's also Hindi presses. Um, and it, and Bhopal became kind of a mini, mini spot for a lot of these people who felt as if they maybe couldn't live in North India under British rule anymore to come and debate and publish and practice. So she created and fostered that kind of environment. Um, she built mosques. Uh, she continued to patronize mosques in other places. Um, her mother built the first mosque in Britain. Um, it's in Surrey, actually. It's called the Shah Jahan Mosque. Mm -hmm. So she continued to patronize that mosque. Um, and she, she ruled over this really interesting period of anti-colonialism that was in Bhopal and also in India more broadly. Um, and I can get into that later if you'd like. But she got very heavily involved in anti-colonialism, specifically coming out of Aligarh with uh, these two reformers who were brothers, Muhammad and Shakab Ali, who um, led a series, led basically this broader movement that said that Muslims in India who are discontented with British rule, um, we have kind of a, we have a temporal commitment to this land, this Indian nation that we're, you know, excuse me, place that we're a part of. We also have a spiritual commitment um, to the Ottoman Caliph, who was the kind of spiritual head of the Muslim community. And this community is not really grounded in land per se. It's, it's very much a symbolic gesture in which they're trying to say, hey, look, the British are fighting the Ottomans. We need to support the Ottoman Caliph in World War One, and this was the generation of a series of anti-colonial ideas that then took different routes from um, the end of World War One all the way up until the partition in 1947. Uh, and Sultan Jahan Begum was central in those. Was this the Caliphate movement? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, okay. yeah, because like Gandhi supported it. It was a wider thing even than just Muslims. Exactly. But... Yes. So the Khilafat movement really got started. Um, the official dates are the 1918, so the end of World War One, till about 1924, when the Caliphate is abolished officially in Turkey. Um, but it starts even a little earlier in 1915 uh, when there, you know, Muslims are looking at how the British are fighting the Ottomans on various fronts, and they're somewhat conflicted in their loyalties, especially because there are a lot of Muslims in the British army fighting for the British against um, Ottoman Muslims. Uh, what did she think about English rule? 
you, like you mentioned, she was sponsoring this mosque in Surrey. She sounds like a pretty cosmopolitan person. So beyond that, the, the caliphate movement, mm-hmm. what was her relationship with the British? So the British were able to solidify their rule in part because they had native rulers uh, in India. Um, so there were parts of India that were ruled by the British. Those were, That was British India. And the parts that were ruled by princes were princely India. Uh, and the, the princes were able to maintain their rule is because many of them in, entered into a series of treaties, first with the, with the English East India Company. And these treaties and the, the clauses within them rolled over into crown rule. Uh, so, for example, some of the states like Hyderabad entered into what we think of as an unequal treaty in which um, Hyderabad has to pay to maintain a set of British forces within the Hyderabad state, for example. Um, okay. All the princely rulers were expected to contribute whatever standing armies they had to the British war effort in World War I, um, which is what Bhopal did, for example. Okay. Uh, so there's there was a good amount of... Um, working together, it's a little hard, again, to, to generalize about princely states um, sure. and the British together. But but basically, English rule was partially able to flourish because they didn't take over all of India. And they had, they had a lot of these negotiations with individual princes who, by and large, unless it was some of these really big states that had histories of resist, like really long histories of militarily resisting British rule, they, they kind of left princely states alone. So mm-hmm. in, in World War I, uh, the Begum gave her troops to the British uh, with the caveat that she doesn't want them fighting against Muslim troops um, specifically. And so the Bhopal 9th Infantry uh, went to France. And there's actually huh. a plaque <laughs> somewhere where it says, you know, thank you to the Bhopal 9th Infantry for saving this village. Uh, many of them were taken as prisoners of war and were in Germany during World War I. And the rest of the, the infantry was sent in 1916 to the Mesopotamian Front, um, which was expressly against what the Begum right. wanted. Uh, and this is, this is kind of a moment when you start to see her, her anti-colonialism come out. And she has this uncomfortable relationship with the British state because on one hand, the British state has, at least in theory, in these treaties, helped her secure her rule and helped her family secure its, its succession in perpetuity. Um, and then on the other hand, <laughs> since Bhopal has been kind of left to do whatever it wants and these Begums are traveling the world, they're making connections with various elites. Um, Sultan Jahan Begum meets the Ottoman Sultan earlier in the 20th century. She is traveling to England. She does support these mosque endeavors. Etc. Um, you know, she gets a little miffed in 1916 when they they send the troops expressly against her orders. This yeah. is when we start to see her kind of push back, where she says, "Okay, maybe she starts to write a history book of Bhopal, for example, where she says, maybe you all didn't really help us out, and these treaties don't actually don't actually form the entire history of Bhopal. Maybe it's actually us Begums and our really strong administration that we fostered that has resulted in the success of our state, the continued success of our state. Um, she also writes a series of books on um, one, for example, Ifato Muslimat, where she says, hey, um, the way that the British are doing things, you know, these, these Western state models, civil and criminal laws, um, 
perhaps despite the fact that they have the British penal code at work in Bhopal at the time, she starts to say, hey, we should be critical about these. So in this book, she actually warns Indian nationalists against kind of wholesale taking Western state models and Western modes of political organizing by saying, hey, you know, we have us, we have these princely rulers, we know what it's like to resist the British and to be kind of crafty about it. So maybe you should turn to us instead of looking West for your models of what anti-colonialism could look like. Yeah. Can you talk more about her book? And like, I mean, it's essentially so, uh, so unique as a female prince kind of speaking to probably almost all men, right? Who would exactly. be her peers. <laughs> uh, so like, what what was the contents of that book? Like, what was her view for women and in this whole movement as well? Right. So the book you know, was written in Urdu in 1916, actually, is when she started writing the book, uh, which is, again, why that year is so important for thinking about her broader politics. Uh, it's published in Urdu in 1918. Uh, it's Ifatul Muslimat. Then it was translated by um, a political agent who are people who work for the colonial government uh, and they are stationed in individual princely states. And so one of them translated it and the book comes out in English in 1922 as um, Al-Hijab or Why Barda is Necessary. Um, so the book itself takes two seemingly disparate tracks. So one is actually about the state of veiling in India, uh, in which she argues that women should maintain it, that they should not discard veils and they should not ease any of the restrictions of Barda. Uh, and the second is what I described earlier in which she's saying, hey, West, the Western way of doing things isn't the only way, and we should think about preserving tradition. And mm. exactly as you said, her audience is entirely a set of male reformers. Uh, and what's another thing that's super interesting about this book is uh, her footnotes in which she's actually reading a series of British authors who argue against the suffrage movement in England uh, because they're saying that, you know, women having independence, leaving the household to work, et cetera, is going to ruin the, the most central part of British society, which is the family. Um, so she's arguing something similar to them, but then she's also saying we need to, you know, if the world isn't ready for women to be out there working, to be out there doing things, men aren't ready for it. So until you all are better, this is where <laughs> women need to be at. And she's, she's trying to connect this idea of the woman as the center of a community, of a society, even of a, of a nation, to the idea of political organizing. So she's saying if we can keep our women sort of safe and protected, then we can have a more successful nation. We're not going to go the same way as Western nations, which have opened themselves up to degradation um, by certain political forms. Now, I usually think of um, conceptions of the nation where women are viewed as more like uh, the cultural center uh, or the future of culture. And then the men are the ones who are seen as the political actors. Um, I, I usually think of that as a, a fairly uh, conservative or uh, sort of regressive way of imagining what the, the nation and the country is. Um, how would you say, uh, how would you interpret what the Begum is saying there? 
I would say two things. One is, is exactly as you were saying, what's really striking about this book is she talks about women kind of as subjects, but mostly as objects, which is something that we see a lot in um, reformist males who are writing right. about the question of women and who are ultimately concerned with the community and the nation. Um, but on the other hand, she is actually, and, and we know this from hindsight, she's fighting a losing battle. So women from the 1910s at these conferences that I talked about earlier, the majority of the women are saying, we need to, to move on. Um, the veil is not something, mm -hmm. is not a tradition that we want to hold on to. And that's symbolic more broadly of which direction women are, are having a consensus in and which way they want to move. So she's, she's almost making this argument that seems dated by the time that she's making it. Um, so I don't, I don't know that I, I don't think liberal and conservative are super helpful for thinking about the Begum who's, you know, mm -hmm. in her mid fifties, um, writing this, I think she's actually just in a way that typical male reformers will do, um, using women to talk more about the state of the nation. Um, mm -hmm. so it's, it's almost less about veiling in and of itself as an actual on the ground practice and more about veiling mm -hmm. as a symbol. Um, okay. And in this sense, it's very striking to read a woman speaking about other women in this way. But again, if you think of her as not just an elite woman, she's kind of a super elite. She's she's a prince, yeah. right? And she is talking to this male audience. So she's being very effective in connecting with her audience using these specific modes. That's such a hot debate uh, all over all over the world, really, about uh, wearing the veil or not and what it represents. When you're reading her opinions, does that, do they resonate or do they just stand totally apart from how people talk about the veil today? They resonate in the sense that, well, on, on one hand, if you do want to take it as kind of a conservative, conservative liberal divide, um, you would have to put her a little towards the conservative side just because of the way that she isn't really interested in women's choice. Uh, yeah. She does sort of talk about them as objects, as instruments for making a bigger argument in her specific case. Um, but she does, she is very remarkably attuned uh, in, in this book that I was talking about earlier in Ifat the Muslimat. She has a couple chapters on women who thrived in Barda. Mm. Uh, and these tend to be elite women. Um, she focuses a lot on daughters of former Mughal emperors, for example. Um, so this is not, you know, the every woman throughout the past. But she says that with education, you know, with seclusion and being kept from some of the the harmful male elements that are out there, basically, um, certain women have been able to achieve remarkable education. They've ruled states. They've changed the course of of history, essentially. Hmm. Um, so she she isn't completely one of the somewhat oblivious male reformers. Um, she is very much aware, being a woman herself, but also being a ruler, um, that there is immense potential. And she's actually, I think, trying to preserve that potential, even if the way she frames her argument may seem conservative to us at first glance. Well, and you know, I, I love the way that you sort of placed her in more of a debate that was going on among women as um, part of the older generation who saw a lot of value in this um, in this practice 
that they themselves had received that value or saw it as a benefit for their life and then wanted it to continue for other generations after. Um, And I think that 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 helps us understand the dynamic that it's not just uh, them like trying to pull everybody backwards, but that they can see benefits in this thing from the past where younger generations see it as um, as being the uh, vehicle for the problems that they have experienced. And so that, that's, that's the debate that's going on, um, which I suppose oh, yeah. might, if we think about the debate today more like that, might also help us understand the different sides in the veiling debate as well. Oh, you posed the, that comment so well, Joy, because that's exactly what's happening today. Um, and without veering too far off course, there is always this intergenerational struggle among women in which, and it, it seems to become the norm or has become the norm today that we have to sort of throw out the older generation. You know, we can appreciate what they did, and, and to, but to stand on their shoulders means to do something else, to do something different. And to get rid of of what has come before us, which, I mean, there are so many articles that are actually questioning how, what kind of progress and what kind of politics this <laughs> results in. Yeah. Because how do you throw away what has happened in the past, and then yet still incorporate that into the future? Um, so it, it's you know it's very present in the wave metaphor, for example, um, when really it just seems to it seems like this is what you were saying forgive me if I'm extrapolating from your comment but that there's always been a series of ideas and debates that are out there we just we keep engaging with them in different forms Mm -hmm. Um, and so it's not as helpful to throw out (laughs) the older generation in favor of the new so what what did the hijab symbolize You, you said the other big point wasn't just that we should fail but don't copy the west uh, in creating our own Indian modernity. So what else was included in that for this like new uh, way forward for India? I think it goes back to this question that in some ways we haven't even resolved today. Uh, and Joy, Joy posed it really well earlier in which is it is this something that should be decided upon by men or by the state? Or is this something that women are deciding themselves? So who gets to regulate dress? Who gets to decide? Um, and it, it goes back to this central concern um, that's really deeply rooted in many feminist movements of, of the woman as being the symbolic center of the community, the nation, especially the health of the, of the nation. And many, many um, activists and scholars will say, you know, that's something that we need to overthrow. Yeah. So I'm not, I'm not sure that we've, that the Begum really solved this problem. Um, I will say, though, that um, so she abdicated the throne in 1926 uh, in favor of her her youngest son. Actually, she didn't have any. Her two daughters had passed away, uh, and two years before she passed away, she took off the veil, um, and she said that she rejects it now because she believes it keeps women in a state of suspended animation. Um, and so despite the fact that she's writing what I earlier called a somewhat dated text in 1918, um, I think she is definitely more dynamic and very much attuned to the certain types of politics. And once she relieves herself of being a princely ruler 
and having to fight for princely sovereignty and keep the, the state in her family, uh, she seems to take on a very different viewpoint about what veiling actually means as a practice for women. And can you say, you said the book was translated in 1922 into English. How did the English audience respond to this? Like, what was their take on veiling? Did they see that as like a conservative thing that needed to be overthrown or was their opinion? I would say um, broadly, I think definitely some of the Englishmen who she's, who she's reading and quoting are on the same page with her. Um, but veiling was one of those practices that the British came in and were kind of like, we're not really sure what to do with yeah. this. And male reformers did their best to make sure that the pub, that the private sphere was something that the colonial state could not legislate on. Uh, and they often did this by framing these ideas as religious. So, you know, the, the colonial state was like, okay, at least ostensibly we believe in um, religious tolerance and we will not try to adjudicate on anything that is religious. And so that was one way that reformers were able to keep some of these issues, especially the ones surrounding women, out away from the purview of the colonial state. But what's interesting about Sultan Jahan Begum is that her wearing a veil in public spaces, on one hand, really angered some high-level imperial administrators. Um, so viceroys, for example, when they would do official tours of India and visit Bhopal, um, commented in personal diaries that they were just incredibly annoyed that she could see them and they can't see her, <laughs> which huh. you know creates this really wonderful power dynamic um, <laughs> in which she's not accessible, but they are, uh, which kind of flips this dynamic that we might otherwise think of the British kind of having more power maybe than the princes. Um, but then also she was, she was just a, a paparazzi target in the in the Western press. Um, mostly because it's like, this is the only female ruler in India. Also, she's in public, but she's veiled so we can kind of see her, but we kind of can't. Mm -hmm. uh, and this, I think, is again, again a fascination that we continue to have today is sort of the you're in public space, but we don't have access to the female body um, mm -hmm. in a way that perhaps we want, or it just, it just continues to raise a series of questions about women in public spaces, basically. Yeah. Well, I think it's so interesting that, like, when we have a book where somebody is uh, declaring their thoughts and their opinions and making uh, suggestions, it, it can really freeze them in time if we only are ever looking at that book. Since this is such a dynamic time as people are wrestling with ideas and then changing their mind, and, um, you know, I, I think about how uh, in the the national movement, Gandhi is saying, hey, let's do these various uh, activities, whether it's, um, you know, the Kadi movement, or let's have the salt march, or let's, let's try to pull ourselves out of uh, working with the British. But then if there starts to be violence, he will change his mind. It's, it's very much of a trying to figure out what the best solution is for the exact time that people are in. I would completely agree. I think a focus on dynamic politics and how all of these individuals are both very well attuned to their own personal opinions and at the same time very aware 
of what is happening with not only their constituencies and, and political parties, but broader politics in the world. And they're very much always trying to create a space for themselves. Most people learn about Indian history now. It's, you know, dominated very much by Hindu narratives. And as we noted, princely era is dominated by male figures a lot. What what would you say the Begum's story and history offers us now? I think we learn two things. And one of them um, may seem simple, but Galen, you asked a great question earlier, you know, is, is the Begum an anomaly among Muslim women? And I think one thing we learn from Sultan Jahan Begum is just that there were a series of Muslim women who effectively ruled a state in the modern era. They wielded real power. They commanded respect among elites, among their army, among other princely rulers, uh, and even with various members of the British administration. Um, Sultan John Begum traveled to England in 1922, excuse me, 25, and she had an audience with King George V. So, you know, there, there are these immense figures, and they existed, and they were interesting, and they were dynamic, and they were involved. And honestly, when I tell people about my project, that's the first response I get is, wow, I had no idea that these women even existed, let alone that they were cool. Um, And I think that's just a a remarkable takeaway of the power of history, of, of what we can do, of what we can learn and continue to relearn. And second, I think I think it's really important to remember how certain voices get pushed aside to fit nationalist agendas, uh, particularly in the case of India in which part of that broader nationalist agenda is to rewrite the history to downplay Muslim presence and influence on the subcontinent. Um, So when you compare the Begums of Bhopal, for example, to um, the Rani of Jhansi, so the Rani of Jhansi died um, in 1857 trying to defend her family's kingdom, uh, and she's since gained this mythical status because of how she died. Uh, and she's she's just a household name. So now in India, we remember her because in part, she fits the Indian state's nationalist view of history in which it was powerful Hindus who were martyred in a sense um, by trying to throw off the yoke of imperialism. And these are the people or the only people that deserve a place in history uh, and in popular imagination. But Recovering Sultan Jahan Begum, um, for me and I hope for, for other people, whoever is listening, it turned into a journey of not only contributing to the diversity of women's experiences throughout the past, um, but also for painting a picture of a person who was indignant at what was happening in the world around her. She remained actively involved in debates. She challenged the British state in the ways that were available to her. Um, and even if she was in the outgroup when it came to expressing a certain kind of opinion, she she still was very deeply tied to what was happening in India. And she always remained really focused on India, which she commented on during her various tours, her travels to Europe, to the Middle East. And I think it's just incredibly important that we acknowledge the diversity of opinions and the different people who contributed to forging powerful visions of possibility in anti-colonial India. Um, And I think that often requires 
challenging and expanding the scope of nationalist histories that, that write these people out. Okay. Thank you very much. Excellent. Thank you so much, Marie. Thank you. This was fun. Check out our website, transasiapod.history.wisc.edu, or you can find us on Twitter at transasiapod. In our next series of episodes, we will be interviewing scholars on a different topic, this time learning more about the history of science as it relates to Asia. So join us next time to learn more about TransAsia and the world.